there's a lady in America who goes down in history as America's greatest miser. Um, she died about 100 years ago uh, this year. Well, last year, actually, 1916. Uh, her name was Hetty Green, and she left an estate valued at approximately uh, $100 million. Um, but she ate cold oatmeal because it would cost too much to heat it. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in looking for a free clinic, even though she had over a hundred million dollars uh, that his case became incurable and his leg had to be amputated. She was wealthy and chose to live as a pauper. Uh, she was so foolish that she hastened her own death uh, by bringing on an attack of apoplexy while arguing about the value of drinking skimmed milk. Uh, you think that's ridiculous? All that money, why be so tight-fisted? All these resources, uh, and yet she failed to use them. And sometimes we as Christians can be like that. Uh, and not only Sometimes can by nature we be like that, but we have an enemy who wants us to not look at our bank balance, as it were, to look at the treasures that are ours in Christ. He wants us to, to forget all the blessings God has given to us. And we see him doing that throughout history. We, we sang of a believer already this evening who had to say, come on, soul, come on, stir yourself up. Don't forget all of God's gracious benefits that he has bestowed on me. And Paul, once he gets going, he can't stop. He doesn't really stop for breath. In, in our Bible uh, translations, verses 3 through to 14 have got full stops, new paragraphs, new sentences. But when Paul wrote it, he just started and kept going, and it all came out as one great long sentence. Uh, I was at Niagara Falls in the summer, and the water just keeps on cascading over and over and doesn't stop. Tons and tons and gallons and gallons of water. And Paul's a bit like that. This is like the Niagara Falls of God's blessing. And even whenever we've grasped something of it this evening, we have to say what Stephen Charnock has taught us to say, this isn't it. It's even more than this. And before we, we launch into it, there's three things to note before we start in. The first thing that's really important to note here, even before we note the important things that I want us to note, the first thing I want to say, the, this first preliminary thing is, these blessings come before the commands. That's a vital truth to grasp. Often in our Christian lives, we are so focused on what does God want me to do? But if we were to pay attention to how the letter to the Ephesians is structured, the letter to the Colossians is structured, the letter to the Romans is written, we would find that the blessings come first. The descriptions of what God has done are set out first before we get to the commands. And even then, it would be really good for us to notice the proportion of the blessings to the commands. 
I would love you to go away and to maybe find an old copy of your Bibles or just get a sheet of paper and and highlight or underline each of the blessings in one color. And then look for when the first commands are and underline them or highlight them in another color. And what you would find is in chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, there are between 60 and 70 statements of what God has done for us. And then, from chapter 4 onwards, we have 32 commands. So you've, you've got twice as many statements of what God has done for us as what God requires us to do for Him. And the blessings come first, reminding us that we are accepted, we are adopted, we have all these blessings, we're forgiven, we've got the Holy Spirit, we've got those first. And God says, now you've got all of that, live for me. I've already accepted you. And uh, I've always noticed that in Ephesians. Um, But I was intrigued reading this book by Sinclair Ferguson, uh, where he says, um, here's his instructions for taking God's medicine. He says, take an old Bible uh, and turn to the letter of Romans. He says, have a pen or marker to hand. For the medicine to work properly, it is essential for you to note the occurrence of a single feature in Paul's letter to the Romans. Read slowly through chapters 1 to 11, And mark every statement that occurs as an imperative. That just means a command. Every statement that is a command telling the reader to do something. Note that Romans chapters 1 to 11 contains 315 verses. Write down the number of verses containing a command. Then check your answer again. When you do that, he says, you find in an English translation there are commands only in seven verses in the first 11 chapters. He devotes 308 out of 315 verses to a long explanation of all that God has done for us. And only then does he open the floodgates and let loose the commands. You see, what Paul wants us to grasp. He's always wanting us to see that before God tells us to do something, we beat ourselves up because we're failing and God must be angry with me and God, I'm not keeping the commands. And God's saying, hold on, hold on. Haven't I already told you before I uttered a single command that I and will see these blessings? I've loved you. I've adopted you. I delight in you. I've forgiven you. I've given you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. It's all there. So, the blessings come before the commands. The second preliminary thing I want us to say is the blessings aren't simply future blessings. They're present blessings. It's not until we get to verse 14 that the future is even considered. And even then... The blessing is telling us that the future is guaranteed. It's not a future blessing, really. It's a blessing that's telling us our future blessings are all guaranteed. These blessings that we look at are present blessings. And that's, that's important to grasp. Praise be, 
Paul writes in verse 3, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do we grasp that now we have every spiritual blessing in Christ? If you're a a Christian, you have these blessings. We're so used to thinking of blessings in terms of happiness and health and uh, prosperity and our plans all working out. But stop for a moment. Remember that Paul is writing this to people who are being persecuted for their faith. He's writing it as someone who's in prison, who's been beaten, who's been shipwrecked, who's been stoned and left for dead, who's been hounded and whipped. Uh, And he's the one praising God for blessings. The blessings that he's speaking of are blessings that are uh, spiritual in nature, but they are rich, rich blessings. So let's learn to see the present blessings that we've got that are harder to see than the physical things that are going on around us. We may miss out on many of the things that the world around us call blessings, but Paul says, forget those. They're passing. These ones are permanent. And no blessing has been withheld from us. And we have to explore our riches. We have all the riches. Uh, but like Hetty, Hetty Green, it might be that we could imagine her as it were living in, on the front porch of her mansion and not enjoying all the rest of the riches that were hers. And we sometimes live on the front porch of God's mansion, as it were, and not exploring the riches and the incredible thing is that the, the, the person who's been a Christian two seconds has as many blessings in Christ as the person who's been a Christian 70 years. Isn't that incredible? And, and, and it's important to grasp that we have these now. I was speaking uh, to, to a friend, who actually the guy that was preaching at our minister's conference last week, and he was saying he preached on uh, this first verse, of uh, verse 3 rather, of Ephesians chapter 1, about we have all these spiritual blessings in Christ. He was preaching at that uh, in a church. And the first man who spoke to him coming out the door said, you were too long. The second man said, let me get this right, you don't understand the Spirit. No, you don't have the Spirit. That was it. You don't have the Spirit. And the third man said, you're not even converted. What? Well, he may have been too long, but try trying to speak about the unsearchable riches of Christ and not be long. Uh, That's hopefully not a foretaste of how long I'll be this evening. Um, Some of you say fat chance. (laughs) But the second man, you don't have the Spirit. Because, you see, he had been taught that you don't have the blessings of Christ till you receive a second blessing of Christ. And then all the blessings come. But that's not what this chapter says, that if you're in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. And this man felt that he hadn't received the second blessing, and therefore he couldn't have every blessing. And he just felt utterly miserable, and had a right to be miserable, because he didn't have the second blessing. But that's not what the passage says. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the Holy Spirit the promised Holy Spirit. We have all of the blessings 
from the moment we come to faith. They're present blessings. Um, And as for the third man who thought that uh, my friend wasn't even a Christian, I don't know uh, what uh, or where he was coming from. But that's the second thing I want us to see. These are present blessings. And then the third thing to note, and this is what we'll be seeing in the rest of it, the whole of the Trinity is involved in blessing you. Sometimes we might think that our blessings come from the Son, that the Son is the one who loves us. But as we read in this chapter, we read in the opening verses, it's the Father who pours out blessings. In chapter, or chapter 1, verse 7, it moves on to the riches we have in the Son. And in verse 14, it caps it off with the Holy Spirit. All of the, the members of the Trinity are involved in your riches, in your blessings. So let's uh, move on to consider uh, three things that we see in these verses. Loved by the Father. Loved by the Father. And as we we look at these uh, opening verses of the section, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How? For, for, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. If you're a Christian, it's because you've been chosen by God. God has set his love on you. Long before I chose God that night, probably uh, when I was Uh, seven or eight, sitting on the stairs way back in about 1982. Before I did that, God had set his love on me. When did he do do it? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. How great it is to be chosen. You remember those days at school when they were picking teams and you were uh, standing there, and you were maybe lined up against the wall. People say, "I'll choose that. I'll choose Davy." And Davy come in, and I'll choose Derek. And Derek went in. Nobody picked the specky, geeky boy uh, that was me until near the end. It's nice to be chosen, and the Bible's incredible truth that we are loved by the Father starts off telling us that we were chosen by the Father. You were chosen by Him. Uh, Chosen uh, before time began. Think about it. Who's writing these words? It's Paul, the man who hunted down Christians and arrested them and tortured them and perhaps even had them put to death. He was not seeking Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was seeking Christ's followers to persecute them. He was not by any stretch of the imagination for choosing Jesus. But God had set his love on Paul. And he had chosen Paul from before the creation of the world. And Paul finds himself on that Damascus road turning to Christ and finding forgiveness. You know, a lot of 
Christians struggle with this great teaching, but it's not here for our debate. It's here for our comfort. Paul's not guessing. He's not speculating. He's writing what God the Holy Spirit is telling him to write, and Paul knows personally that if it had been down to him choosing Jesus, that would never have happened. If it had been down to me choosing Jesus, it wouldn't have happened. But here's this God who has set his love on us. And as I've said before, go out and stand and look at the stars and look at the seas and look at the mountains and look at the scenery and marvel that before they were there, God had set his love on you. What a, what riches, what riches. God has set his love on us. God has chosen us. And if you're a Christian, it's because primarily God has pursued you and chosen you and gone after you because he loved you. Chosen. There's part of his love. Loved by the Father. But it's better than that. Look at what Paul goes on to say. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with with his pleasure and will. Oh, there's there's so much in here. He chose us to be adopted. Not simply chose us to be saved. That would be wonderful. But chose us to be adopted into his family. Chose us to be adopted as his sons. He had a son. And he chose us to have all the privileges and all the rights and all the joys and all the status that his son had. God the Father looks on you with no less delight than that with which he looks on God the Son. God the Father looks on you with no less delight than with that delight on which he looks on God the Son. Is that not amazing? We are adopted. And why did he do it? In accordance with his pleasure and will. Why did he do it? Because it made him happy. Made him happy. He didn't do it because he looked down the the corridor of time and thought, oh, there's someone that I think is worth loving. No. He did it before we were born, before the mountains were formed, before the creation of the world, simply because it brought him joy. This is not incredible. You know, some of you know that my brother and my sister-in-law have adopted a little girl. And little Demi has all the privileges, blessings, and joys, as well as the quirks and oddities of having to belong to the Lockridge clan. There she is at our Christmas dinners. There she is at our birthday parties. There she is enjoying all the same... uh, pleasures and treats and presents as the other Lockridge children and grandchildren are. That's what God does for us. He says, I'll be your father. Come to my house, join my family, eat at my table, play in my yard. I'll clothe you. I'll give you my name. I'll be involved in your life. Where would little Demi have been had my 
brother not said, I'll be a father to you. And Emma not said, I'll be a, a mother to you. Where would she not be? God says to us, I'll be involved in your life. I will pour my time and my resources and my love and my wisdom and my energy into you. You are mine. Do we live like we belong? Do we live and grasp that this is one of our blessings, that our Father is the God who has made the universe, who cares for us and who delights in us? Will we remember that we live in our Father's world? We may have had all sorts of family experiences, but we have been moved into a different family where we are delighted in and loved by our Father in heaven who shows no favoritism amongst His children. We might feel, I am a poor Christian, and I don't deserve a Father's love. Father says, I don't love you because you deserve it. I love you because it brings me pleasure. I choose to. And we need to go back to these verses perhaps often, and put our name into them. Put your name into those verses. For He chose you. Say your name in your mind. For He chose you. In Him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight, in love He predestined you to be adopted as His Son through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will. Loved by the Father. Secondly, we see that we're rescued by the Son. Rescued by the Son. And verses 7 to 8, we have to move on. Verses 7 to 8, uh, we're told that in Him, in the Son the one that the Father loves. We're, we're told that our salvation has been freely given us uh, in the one He loves. In, in Him, in the one that He loves, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Oh, He's not stingy, this God. He lavishes on His people, and, and we're redeemed. And I just want to pick out very briefly, because you're going to have to go away and think on these, because I can't unpack it all here. Three things that we've been redeemed from that are hinted at or spoken of in these verses. You know, the, the idea of redemption. Paul is going away back to the imagery of the book of Exodus, where the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and they were redeemed. They were brought out of slavery, and they were set free. You have been set free from slavery. Sin held us in its grip. Sin holds people in the world around us in its grip. And you have been set free. You. You walk amongst people tomorrow and they seem to have all kinds of things and all sorts of privileges and all sorts of things are going well for them. But if you could see them, they are slaves. They are in the grip of a cruel taskmaster. And although life may have its struggles for you, you have been set free. You have been set free from that cruel taskmaster. You have been redeemed. Jesus Christ came and paid the price to set you free. You're no longer a, a slave to sin. 
that spiritual cancer that was eating away at you that nobody could see, has been removed. It's been removed. Wonderful. You're no longer a slave to sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross is proof that we have this freedom, that we have this uh, redemption. That's the first thing we're set free from. And that's, you see, that gives us hope. We will not be perfect, but we don't have to be falling into the same old habits as we saw this morning. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. We've been set free from slavery to sin. Secondly, we've been set free from guilt through His blood. We have redemption through His blood, and then Paul says almost in brackets or, or as an explanation, the forgiveness of sins. We've been set free from guilt. I've got one life. You've got one life, and I've ruined it. I'm guilty. I haven't given God the honor He, he desires and deserves. But Jesus Christ has washed away my guilt with a torrent of His cleansing blood, and it was lavished on us. Oh, I love this verse. Um, it was lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, maybe your Bible version punctuates that sentence a little differently. Um, in verse 8, it says, In accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Some, verses, some versions put a full stop in there and then say, With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will. But it's all one sentence uh, in Paul's original. And so, don't let that full stop throw you off. And actually, um, the commentators uh, disagree, but some of them, most of them seem to say, and the one I was looking at in particular says that that little phrase belongs with the previous part of the phrase, that he, la that the forgiveness of sins, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So he lavished grace on us with all wisdom and understanding. He knew exactly what he was doing. I've started into either maintenance projects or washing projects, whether it's trying to scrub uh, a filthy uh, cake tin or baking tray, or whether it's something out in the, the yard and you start to scrub it uh, with a scrubbing brush. You're like, no, this is bigger than I realized. I haven't started into the project with wisdom or understanding, and it's going to take far more out of me than I grasp. But God chose to forgive us, lavishing His grace on us, knowing fully what it would cost Him. And He didn't shirk from it. He knew that to redeem you would cost him the lifeblood of his precious Son. And God the Son knew that he would have to bear your sins, and he lavished it on you. He didn't hesitate. He lavished that forgiveness on you with all wisdom and understanding, because he delights to show the riches of his grace to you. What a blessing! You have been set free from guilt. All that ugliness has been wiped away by Christ. He has taken it all away and lavished you with cleansing. And then you've been set free, not just from slavery, not just from guilt, but from pointlessness. 
pointlessness. Look at verses 10 to 12. They, they seem less clear to us, perhaps. But in verses 10 to 12, we find out something that God has made known to us, a mystery. And that mystery is going to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, that all things are going to be, in heaven and earth, are going to be put together under one head, that is Christ. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. We've been included in a plan. And that plan is going to reach its fulfillment. And that plan takes in everything. Everything that has happened and will happen is included in that plan. And you, as one of Christ's people, are woven into this plan as a beneficiary of it. So our lives are not pointless. Our lives have purpose and meaning and significance. In verse Uh, 22, we read, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. What an incredible blessing. There are people around us doing things to make names for themselves, and yet they'll be forgotten about in two generations. And yet your life is woven into the very purpose of the universe. There is a plan for you and for your life that takes in everything. Nothing is wasted. And we've got to preach this against the backdrop of a young man being diagnosed with cancer, of a 49-year-old father and husband being killed in a motorbike accident. God makes no mistakes. He makes no mistakes. A hymn writer says, and you've heard me quote it, he's too wise to be mistaken and too good to be unkind. How do we know that? Because we look at the cross, the blackest, darkest event, and yet we see his wisdom and his goodness. And before he asks us to trust him with our pain, he says, let me prove to you with my pain, that I am good and wise, and I waste nothing. And what encouragement this gives us. Our lives are not a pointless waste. Our lives have purpose. Christ is head over everything. He's orchestrating it. Nothing happens to you by accident. What a blessing. People out there wondering, well, why is this happening to me? What's going on? And we might not have the specific answer for ourselves, but we know that our dad, our father, orchestrates everything for the good of his people. There is a plan. What riches we have. Yesterday, there was a a piece uh, written on Desiring God Ministries about a lady. I've forgotten the title of it. I think it's God's purpose in my Lyme's disease. This mother was asked by her seven-year-old daughter who also has this illness, Mommy, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I kind of wish you hadn't had us when you were sick. Then you wouldn't have given us all your Lyme disease. 
And the mother says, well, I know that would have felt normally like salt in the wound. Uh, But thankfully, the Spirit gave me the ability to hear her words as words of searching, not accusation. And she spoke with her daughter about God's kindness, God's sovereignty, God's love. I shared with my daughter that God knew the number of our days, the hairs of our head, and the struggles we would face even before we were created. He spoke to her about how God had a purpose in all of this. And then she said, As I tucked my daughter into bed shortly after that, I heard her pray, Jesus, thank you that you have a purpose for my Lyme disease and that it won't last forever. Seven-year-old. Isn't that incredible? That's a mum and a daughter grasping one of the blessings of our redemption by the Son. Everything has a purpose for our good. We need to preach that to ourselves. We need to preach it to ourselves. And then thirdly, We've loved by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, verses 13 and 14. The moment you become a Christian, God marks you out as His. And that mark is none other than Himself. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we belong to God's family. Not only is God's name put on us at our baptism, baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, But God the Father places God the Holy Spirit in us to mark us out as His. Like a farmer marking out which sheep are His. In the ancient world, a man would put his seal in a document to say, this is genuinely mine. We get the Holy Spirit to live in us. And yes, His job is to make us more holy. That's His work. But his role is a mar- to mark us out as belonging, to assure us that we belong, to be a deposit, as it were, that before we are in God's presence in glory, he is in us by his Holy Spirit. The word that's used here of a deposit was also used in the ancient world in the, the Greek language of an engagement ring. Says, Here's proof that I'm committed to you, that I love you and won't leave you. Here's our ring to mark our relationship. And God says, I've given you the Holy Spirit to mark in you that you belong. And as we see the Holy Spirit working in us, as He takes God's Word and applies it to our lives, as He reassures us that we belong, as He develops in us the fruit of the Spirit. That's God. That's God's down payment. That's God saying to us, you're part of my family. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed by Him. And that down payment was a a sign that the rest was coming. And if God has given us His Spirit, He will not fall short. He will come, and we will be with Him forever. 
This is what it means to be blessed. This is, you know, Paul is a one long sentence um, that he's crammed all this into. He says, this is part of what it is to have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just as we finish, two things. One is, this passage doesn't have any commands. It's just big, long, one big, long string of things to praise God for. So let's do that. Let's make it our aim to praise God for these things. Take this chapter this week and go through it and read it and underline it uh, and list out the blessings and divide them over the days of the week and go on into chapter 2. We have, that's only, we're only halfway through chapter 1. And that leads us to the second thing. What does Paul do in the rest of chapter 1? He prays that they'd get it, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would know him better, the eyes of their heart may be enlightened in order that they would know the hope to which he has called you, his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that incomparably great power that is for us. Our lives aren't pointless. They're tightly interwoven into the purposes of God as his beloved children. And his mighty power is at work in us and for us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, this is our prayer. I ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you here this evening the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. O Lord, Will you press home to your people whenever Satan would rob us of the glorious blessings that are ours, rob us of the sight of them. He can't take them away from us, but he can cloud our vision. Or let us see. Let us say to ourselves, Come on, my soul, be stirred up within me, and forget not all the Lord's gracious benefits. Revive us and refresh us, O Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.